Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. This is episode 116. I'm Dan. And I'm Nick. Very thorough introductions there today. In today's episode, we have a special guest. Well, sometimes we go on and on. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Take it away. You always uh, write these beautiful place setting stories for these interview (laughs) episodes. So let's have some Nick story time. I I like to to paint a picture for our audience here, you know, Um, so you guys can feel like you were there with us. So it was a gorgeous day in Toronto and Dan and I had just finished up a morning meeting in Midtown with an old broker friend of mine who's now working for a family office. Uh, And it was time to head to our next meeting, one that we were both very excited about. So we drove down to the waterfront and walked into the beautiful new building that overlooks the city's downtown core, as well as the Toronto Islands. And the famous Red Path Sugar Building, which, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong here, which apparently has like a 99-year or or an indefinite lease, so pretty much that place isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I think actually I think actually, um, legally land leases can only be 99 years at a time, but yeah, like they are, um, it would be 99 in them, I mean, functionally indefinite, right? Longer than anyone's yeah. career in real estate. <laughs> so after parking, we took the elevator up to the Daniels headquarters where we were greeted, given a tour and set up for our interview with the president and broker of record at the Daniels Realty Corporation, Dominic Tompa. Now, if you remember uh, from our last episode, we teased that we were going to be doing an episode with someone from Daniels. Now, Dominic has been at Daniels for almost two decades and in the industry for even longer than that. The Daniels Corporation, better known simply as just Daniels, is one of the greatest preeminent builders and developers in the country, building more than 35,000 homes across the GTA in almost 40 years. Uh, They've revolutionized neighborhoods. And uh, yeah, we sat down to talk to Dominic all about it. Dan, what were your takeaways? Well, first, beyond their um, great name, which yeah, I thought you might like that. I, I I was really reluctant to make the joke, but uh, but great name, great name. <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, he shares some great old stories, some great war stories. Um, obviously, a little bit more more knowledgeable in the condo sector than I am, in the development sector than I am, and and more bullish probably as a result. But uh, interesting to hear that perspective. But very realistic as well. And we talked a lot about recession cycles and what a recovery looks like and the challenges facing developers today and what can be done to solve them. He also has three rules for investors and what the next big opportunities in Canadian real estate are. I was really happy with the conversation. I learned a lot. Yeah, no, it was awesome. My favorite part is is when we kind of went into what a recovery looks like. And the reason he was able to speak on it is because he's been through cycles. He's seen recoveries before. So fascinating stuff. Uh, Dan, why don't you and I stop blabbering on and, and get right into the interview here? Yeah, I would also like to note that we acknowledge that the audio in a lot of our interviews isn't good. We think we got it a little bit closer to refined yeah, at this point. Yeah, good and, call. Uh, so we're, <laughs> we're working on it, folks. Yeah. On-site yeah. interviews with uh, duffel bags full of gear are not always the easiest. You're kind of working <laughs> with rooms, and and boardrooms tend to be very very echoey. This actually, you know, worth noting that you know these guys are expert marketers, and they literally had on-site um, 
soundproofing in one of the boardrooms. So, um, there's, you know, there's a reason why it sounds pretty good compared to our other interviews. Love it. Enjoy. What's that personality trait you have to have? You have to have the courage of your convictions. And what I mean by that is you, yes, you have to analyze things. So it's not just going half cocked and, and doing things, but it's doing the analysis and then having the courage to stick with it. Because right now is where you're going to see the greatest opportunities. And anyone who's buying right now in three, four years, people will be saying, wow, you, you know, what a, you're, you're so smart. What a genius. What a, what a great move, right? I saw that in the early 90s. I was still a pretty young real estate agent working in the resale market. And your customer, you know, and, and at that stage, five-year money was about 13%, about 5% lower than it was in the one in the early 80s. But still, compared to today, very, you know, a lot higher. But you would have people, and, and there were great deals to be had out there because there were, there's always, you know, whenever you're in a market where the rates go up high, there's, there's sellers who want to unload their real estate. It's just a, a natural part of the market. People were all hesitant to buy, but I think of the ones that did buy at that time. And within three years, their purchases look like genius, right? I mean, they made so much money off them. The same thing is occurring right now. There's so many buying opportunities in real estate right now that that's really where people's focus needs to be. Don't over leverage, of course, but the opportunities are there. So you, you kind of have to have the courage to not be a follower and do your research and do your analysis, but don't be afraid because everyone else is doing something different from from going out there and investing yeah i i love that on, on that note why don't we just we just keep it going sure at this point yeah. here uh we're already into it that was already a, a great anecdote and um really does put interest rates into perspective uh, yeah. these days so you know i'd say I, my takeaway your most important character trait would be you know a combination of grit foresight and um again as you said just be a bit of a maverick right make those decisions that no one else is if you had to take that same person and give them three Three rules to be a real estate investor, what would those be? You hear this all the time, but I've got a spin on it in the sense that you always hear location, location, location. So buy location. Okay, what the heck does that really mean? Right? I think people always say it and most people, if you're at Aston. And, and everyone says that. it three times. Yes. No one can say it yeah, one time. It's exactly. always three yeah. times. So exactly what does that mean? Here's what it means to me. There's opportunities out there to buy where the real estate is undervalued for a number of different reasons. And I think of, I can think of sites that we have right now. We have a great location called Daniels Keelsdale, which, which is a mix of mid-rise and townhome suites on, on Keel Street, just above Eglinton. Now, right now, it's in a nice location, but it's going to be in a great location as soon as the LRT opens. So you're able to buy at today's prices, something that very shortly is really going to go up a lot. So when you say location, it doesn't have to be necessarily it's the best location today is fully developed because the, the opportunity for equity increase is lower in that location, even though it's a great location. It may be safe, but it's not necessarily the best opportunity from a standpoint of your return on investment. I think that when you th when I think of location, I look at locations where you're able to, to buy today and reap the benefits of things that are happening over a period of, say, three, five, seven years. And that's the other thing I would be telling people is, you know, Warren Buffett often talks about his strategy of buy and hold. Real estate is, is really can, can be done in the same way. Now, you don't necessarily have to hold forever. And so I, I'm not an advocate of, oh, you buy and you never sell it. There are times where it makes sense 
to divest yourself of certain properties. But the idea of, of having a bit longer term of a strategy. So when you, when you kind of combine that location thing and knowing that there's, there's some really positive things happening in that location over a period of five to 10 years, have that as your timeline. Be willing to buy it, hold on to it, and realize the benefit of what's happening in that neighborhood before you think of divesting of it. So that's kind of the second thing I'd say there. And the other thing, and this is probably very germane to today, is you know the value of buying real estate is leverage, right? You're leveraging money. And it can work in your favor, but it can also work against you, right? And some people are recognizing that today. So it's really understanding that leverage and using it in your favor. And 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 don't over leverage. I mean, I, I've saw in the last three or four years kind of leading up to the to the, the the peak of the marketplace in the last few years, where you had a lot of investors really not putting a lot of thought into what they were doing. They're basically going to every new development and signing up for a unit, not even looking at what's the return going to be, what's rent going to be. It was just, I think it's just going to keep going up. And leveraging your money like that is a mistake. It's got to be more thoughtfully done. So you, you have to leave yourself in the marketplace some room for temporary adjustments. Yeah, we don't call those investors. We call those speculators. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, from a you know, from our sales offices, and I don't. Unfortunately, I don't spend as much time in our sales offices as I used to. But you know, in 2020 and 2021, sitting in our sales offices on a launch. And hearing some of the things I was hearing coming from both realtors and oh, buyers, <laughs> and it, it just it made you wonder. Like it, I'd be hearing buyers saying, "Oh well, don't worry, you're not going to have to close." I used to hear this so often. It this this would cause my blood pressure to go up instantly. Oh, what do you mean oh, you don't have to close? <laughs> of course you have to close. You should. This this isn't a commodities futures you're yeah. buying. You're yeah. buying a piece of real estate, right? So you know. And, you know, when people don't even ask you about the floor plan, you know, they're not thinking through it. And, you know, you as an investor, you have to be thinking longer term. And sometimes you could, you know, this is the other thing is you don't have to grab those returns right away. Like there's this instinct uh, where people say, but I can make $50,000 right away. Well, who cares? You're going to make $200,000 over five years instead. So don't be so eager just to take out the returns. Think it through, analyze it, and keep with your plan. I mean, that's kind of part of that persistence of, of knowing that I've got a plan in place for my portfolio, and I'm going to follow it. Can't follow it like cement. There are times where you do have to make adjustments. So you have to be willing to relook, and and maybe your analysis was wrong on some areas. So you, you have to be willing to pivot, but you shouldn't just be a pivot isn't just this eagerness to take out profit. Yeah, no, really well said. Yeah, excellent points there. Um, I like, you know, when you talk a little bit about like the the LRT as an example, and when you're saying, you know, you're you're buying into a location and you're also buying the future, potential future value of that location. It's almost like one of the only asset classes where insider trading is almost allowed, right? Like you can, yeah, that's right. you can be given all of this information that's publicly available that this infrastructure project is going in and you have an opportunity to capitalize on that. And the only thing necessary to really do that is, is use that buy and hold strategy that you're saying, be able to buy the asset now or buy the contract to own that asset in the future. And you can capitalize on that piece of information. I could give you a great example that I always love because it's very dear to my heart is our Regent Park community, which, you know, we, we did the first three phases of, of Regent Park. And when we started back in, I think it was 2007, the first building we went on sale was in 2009. But 
I mean, it was a hard sell, right? This was a yeah. community that only had rent geared to income housing, about 2,000 suites in these small three, four-story walk-ups. Um, it was, in terms of design, it wasn't very friendly for bringing people in from the outside because there, there were no through streets. There really weren't these nicely well-lit walkways. So when we came in with the Toronto Community Housing and the community, we kind of created this whole new design where it was very friendly to walk through, easy to drive through. We brought commercial back into it. So there had, ne there had never been a bank in Regent Park for almost 50 years. And RBC partnered and, and came in. Sobeys came in. And we so dramatically changed that community. But that first building, it's called One Coal Condominiums at uh, Dundas in Parliament. When we went on sale at the beginning of 2009, I, I, I recall about two months before we went on sale, there was an article saying this will be the only building we build because we won't be able to sell it and this dream is going to die. And and so, I mean, I was so passionate about Regent Park and the, the, the residents there. They're, they're such lovely people. Um, but it was a, like right out of the door. We sold 66% on day one of the launch. But what's interesting when I talk about opportunities and knowing like we, you know, when we were selling that, we showed people what this was going to look like when it was completed 15 years down the road. But we could show them where there'd be a new six acre park. We'd show them where there was going to be an arts center. We showed them all of these things. And if you had the vision, I used to, I was always referring to, to, to people who were willing to buy at that time as pioneers because they were early adopters, <laughs> yeah. right? like in the tax space. And, but, you know, they bought it $393 a square foot. And we're selling for over $1,300 a square foot yeah. there now. So are they happy to buy? And yet they had all the information. This isn't buying on a whim and this isn't buying with, you know, kind of rolling dice. You knew what was going to happen. And there's all there's this is just one community It's one I'm very proud of. But there's a lot of different areas like that out there in the GTA that if you do your homework, you're going to find and you will see really phenomenal, phenomenal returns. And that's what I mean by location. For, for me, it's looking for those opportunities where there's going to be a lot of change to that community. Yeah, it's, I, I'm very familiar with that project, actually, because uh I was in university when that was being developed and built. And at the end, there you I think there was this large event hosted at the Daniel Spectrum for the large urban mayors. I don't know if you remember that, but I had pitched an afford affordable housing concept in that in that room right after it was completed to, for the it was a large urban mayors caucus meeting or something like that. So that that's a fascinating project and completely changed. I mean, sometimes when you hear the scale of like. Um, I mean, Stuyvesant towns in New York might be a good example, right? Like complete neighborhood changing or complete city changing um, projects. I feel like we're at the scale in, in the city of Toronto and a lot of cities in Canada now where we have so much demand. Like rather than thinking about, you know, excess demand or population growth as this thing that's like, you know, rocket fuel for speculative investments, we should be thinking about it as how much impact it has in the ability to completely change the the, the macro landscape of our country over the next several decades because what you're describing is the actual impact like it's it's not just that house prices could could go up by x amount over the next 10 20 years it's what city sh you know is this population group group moving to or this employment group moving to what neighborhoods are going to be formed what's toronto or or canada going to look like in a I, I guess a global context in in several decades and how can i attach my real estate investing thesis to that I guess on that note, um, I might skip over the, the bull and bear question for now um, and jump to sort of what specific data points you look at to 
inform your own decision making on um on real estate investing or, you know, or from the sales perspective, what, what data points are you looking at? I know we mentioned a couple prior to starting the recording, but, um, you know, and what, what things would you be advising, advising investors or realtors who you're, um, advising on, on units to be looking at in the, in the market right now to, to make decisions? Well, from our side of the table, the developer side of the table right now, from a sales standpoint, what, what are we looking for is we're wanting to see just how successful you are at launch, right? So, you know, typically, um, you know, we're talking absorption here, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're launching, our typical launch absorption was about 60% over the last few years. So you would launch and, and reach that number. And these are all important because it all affects your financing, right? So as you know, you've got to reach a certain level for your construction financing in order to build the building that you're trying to sell. Um, to see where, where where the market is going, seeing that sales absorption is, is going to be a real key to see what the next six months or so are going to be like. Over the last year, sales absorption on average for across in our industry has been closer to 30%, maybe even the high 20 odd percent, right? So it's been a significant reduction and and that and it kind of has a cascading effect because if you need to hit 65% to get to your stage where you're going to get construction financing and the project's a go then if you're not hitting it in that first 6 months just how long is that stretch so you're you're if you only hit 25% on launch getting from 25 to 65 can be a real challenge so Looking at where the absorption rates are in the next year is really important because that will determine just how much actually gets built. You know, we keep talking about construction starts, but the construction starts are so tied into that absorption because if you don't have the absorption, it doesn't matter. You can say there's 25 projects launching this fall, which I think is about the number that I'm hearing. But if none of them reach 60%, we have no idea when the, those will turn into construction starts. So that's the, the the number one number right now that from my side of the table, I'm looking at. Because from the buyer's side, they still have so many options because everything is absorbing slower, which is why there's so many opportunities right now. Now, of course, the other thing to to look at from the buyer's perspective in the market we're in is, you know, I always say that, in a tougher market, there's this kind of, you know, fleeing to blue blue chip stock, and and who's done it before? So a company like ours, um, in business since 1982, has seen the ups and downs. And you know, the other thing about a company like ours, we build our own product, which is kind of unusual. I mean, the the the, the buying public, I think, in general, doesn't realize that when they go into a, a new construction sales office, that the people they're buying from aren't going to build the home they're going to move into, right? Yeah, so. the, the public has no idea. Can we can we maybe elaborate on that a little? Because I think that's very important. You'd mentioned earlier the vertical integration that Daniels has. Let's let's touch on that right there. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a differentiating factor between you and some other there's only a handful, developers. There's only a handful of developers in the GTA who actually have that type of setup. So when I talk about vertical integration with a company like ours, from our land purchase to a homeowner moving in and their whole pre-delivery inspection experience, all of it is in-house. So whether it's our sales team, whether it's our construction team, 
design, everything is in-house. And what that allows us to do is give a higher level of quality. And, you know, we recently, you know, we, we've won these a lot, but I always brag about them. You know, we won the High Rise Builder of the Year uh, this year again. Um, and it's because of that. It's because of our ability to control quality. Mm-hmm. So that is an advantage that that we have and like i said most people don't realize that there's only a handful of developers who do that most of them everything is being contracted out from development to sales to construction the whole process is you're dealing with general contractors right so it's a very different experience that a buyer has when they come to the daniels corporation and buy a home than they would with most others and in the type of market we're in you know, we, we talk about, you know, I mentioned earlier that construction costs are still going up at a time when, you know, prices are relatively flat. Um, we're able to control that better because it's our own team. Yeah. You know, the, the, the image of like the three circles, quality, cost and time, and it's like you can only ever pick two. Well, you guys actually have the ability to kind of have more control over those than than most of the competition, right? Because you are starting like literally from going to finding the land and purchasing that land and maybe holding it for a number of years until it is ready to be developed, zoning, permitting, all, all the way through to again, the you know pre-delivery inspection. Let's talk a bit more about that. What do you see? Because again, the vertical integration is, is fantastic. It's a differentiating factor, but it doesn't alleviate Daniels from some of the challenges that are being faced right now across the country for small cap to to large scale developers. So what in your world are the biggest challenges that you think are affecting Canadian real estate and the development of new homes in, in, in Canada? Well, there's a number of, yeah, these are challenging times, right? And, in, and they're challenging because of, of costs that are beyond our control. Right. So interest rates is the typical. Right. And you think if you're a homeowner and you've got a mortgage and you hear that the bank of Canada just raised their rate, it may not really affect you until your renewal. Right. And then it's going to affect you. It affects us right away. Right. We're not locking in when we're, we're financing a project. You're, you're not locking that rate in for five years or something. So you're getting an almost instant cost bump to, to your project. And in the last 14 months since rates really started going up. You're talking about about a 30% increase in carrying costs. That's enormous when you're you're not talking about $500,000 loans. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars loans. So that is that the real challenge for our industry. It's not just for us, it's for everyone in the industry. The other one is uh, the construction costs. Although the industry is slowing down in terms of new housing starts, nothing has changed as far as the pipeline, the immediate pipeline for the trades. So um, they tend to think in terms of maybe a three-year time span. So everything that they're working on is product that was sold before the market slowed down and interest rates started going up. And they have about a three-year pipeline of work. So Typical, oh, it's human nature thing, right? Why why are we going to adjust our pricing at a time when I can't even foresee a time when I'm not super busy? So construction costs are one of these lagging cost items that get adjusted. Land prices are adjusting downwards right now, right? So that kind of becomes more immediate. But the construction cost factor is not, 
and it may in the you know it's hard to tell you that when it will actually get to it but generally you know if we look at it historically those costs tend to moderate when they can no longer see the pipeline as full as it is right now and we're still a little ways away from that so that's a really uh, important thing and of course the other thing is just all of the government costs that go to go into the cost of a home and when we were uh, to spend some time with our investment team this morning on this and we were looking at you know we're, we're trying to break down who's making what off each uh, off off a, a condominium building that we build and you know we're looking for a margin from 12 to 15 percent but the government's getting a margin of 14 to 18 percent and taking no risk at all yeah, what does the government do to build these condominiums again? <laughs> exactly. And what's worse, <laughs> then they talk about we need to have more affordable housing. So it's kind of a catch-22, right? The, the, the more costs you add, the more fixed costs you add, the harder it is to create affordable housing. It's interesting in the context of like when you talk about um, development charges, especially like Vancouver, as an example, you've seen a huge increase in purpose-built rental supply in Vancouver because they have an incentive program for purpose-built rental where the development charges are reduced if you if you build it as a rental building rather than a condo. And their condo market actually prices kind of went flat in 2016, I think, and 2017 maybe, and haven't really recovered since then. Do you like if the government is as in, in the city of Toronto or in any municipal government or or even provincial or federal governments, if they're as serious as they act like they are about creating affordable housing, isn't that like the lowest hanging fruit is just reducing the, the tax structure? Absolutely. Um, and, and do you think that that's like some sort of policy change that we could see on the horizon if like everything that you're telling me, cost structure increasing, not, you know, not seeing deflation and construction costs anytime soon, nobody lining up to buy these units. But yet we still have the highest population growth we've ever seen, and that's going to be sustained. So we're going to have excess demand and a, a continued housing uh, crisis and shortage for this foreseeable future. Um, I mean, if that problem isn't solved anytime soon, we have a it just compounds annually until I don't know what happens at that point, right? Yeah, these these are these are really intricate problems. Yeah. You, you don't have an answer for this one? Okay. <laughs> a solution? <laughs> one that works best for me. But, yeah. uh, no, you know, these are intricate problems and they're, they're, you know, you can you can get these really surface solutions that really aren't going to be the answer either. Mm. And I'm not sure if, you know, when we talk about affordable housing, I my opinion is most of it has is going to have to be in rental stock and yeah. not in ownership. Just trying to get ownership into that affordable level in the GTA is going to, I don't see an easy answer to that, right? Mm-hmm. You could eliminate all of the government costs on it. And, you know, you're going to take maybe $160,000 off of the price of a, of a home, but you still do the math on it at today's interest rates. And you're still talking about having an income level that's on an average home needing to have an income level in the $180,000 yeah. range, right? So that's kind of the daunting thing when you talk about affordable housing is it's it's a wonderful idea. How do we really go about it? And it's it, it's going to take really a it, it takes every every constituency involved in it and being willing to take less as well, right? Yeah. That's the developers too, right? It's everybody, right? It's a, you're not going to do it by just eliminating one area and any, you could eliminate all the government costs and you still wouldn't really create that level of affordable housing. And you talked about just the numbers of people, right? And when we talk, you know, I think about where's our market going? Like what's the upside potential if you're an investor? 
um, what do we what what's the best case scenario? The best case scenario was actually the reality of what's happening. You've got approximately half a million people coming into Canada now every year. That's what they've increased it to. 220,000 of them come to Ontario. The construction starts in Ontario in 2023 are approximately 76,000. That math, it doesn't jive, It it doesn't work because you're not, because you also have to factor in the new young families that have been living here that still want to buy too, right? Yeah, just the so, normal cycle of you know, people moving there, there's out. There's this and... basic, you know, you could really bring it down to some basics in the sense that, you know, you think of it, what do you need to do every day? Well, I got to eat. And guess what? You got to sleep somewhere every single night. It's not a once in a while thing. You need somewhere to sleep every night. So you need somewhere for these people to be. Right now, the Bank of Canada is raising rates. Hopefully, they don't raise them again on the 6th. But they're chasing their own tail at this stage. I mean, if you take a look at that that last increase, what they did was they looked at it. You look at inflation; it was what just two point eight percent. But if you took out the housing cost increase, which is caused by their increase, it was actually two percent, which is bang on their target. So if they raise them again, guess what they're going to see? Inflation goes up a bit, but it's only housing costs. No. <laughs> so you know and. I know they want to keep housing, you know, and, and there's this mentality right now with them where they want to see housing costs stay relatively the same. But I argue if you want to keep them the same, unfortunately, then you've got to eliminate immigration because you can't bring in 500,000 people every year and not have housing costs go up because the need for that housing is going up and it's any marketplace is going to react to supply and demand and the demand is going to go up. So the moment they bring rates down quarter point, a half a point, you're going to see a mini boom in the market. I don't know how long it'll last, but there's this really significant pent up demand just on pure demographics that is impossible to avoid. Uh, so you're going to see that happen regardless. So it's almost, it's really hard to, to see a marketplace over the next few years. I, the hard part is knowing exactly when it starts to, to, to get into that mode. But once they let go of interest rates a bit and, and soften them a bit, you will immediately see that pent-up demand exercised in the marketplace. And you're going to see, I know they don't want to see it, but you're going to see an increase in prices because that just has to happen. It's interesting when you mention the the excess demand. I've done a lot of research on, on a lot of this, this stuff. And um, one of the things that I've found is that there's excess demand when you think about it on a per unit basis, but on a square footage basis, I mean, Canada is technically overhoused. And, you know, I personally think that the fourplex everything policy in the city of Toronto um, and missing middle policy and, and infill, you know, density, conversion, multiplexing, et cetera, is, is a big opportunity in Canada. You know, you can agree or disagree with that, but I'm just, just mentioning it. I guess my curiosity is, because um, I, I think a lot of demand could spill over into that. And it's, it's a very agile supply chain that could create more units. And a lot of our listeners uh, want to do that kind of stuff. Um, I, I guess beyond that, do you, do you think that that's a decent opportunity? And if, if not, or, or aside from that, what other big opportunities are you seeing in Canadian real estate right now for kind of your regular Joe investors? Right? So I do think that is a good opportunity. I want to be careful in the sense that I must say I'm a local in this, in that, um, my focus is 
frankly, the GTA. So yeah, I, don't wanna, you know, I, I don't do a lot of analysis. I know that today people are, you know, investors are looking at opportunities in great growing cities like Calgary and other places like that. But that's really never been my focus. So Fair in, in my almost 40 years, it's always been the GTA. So when I speak about the GTA and the, the numbers, it's really talking about here and, you know, immigration numbers here. So yeah. what what the housing needs and demographics are in some of the other provinces, I would not be the right guy to be talking Fair to enough. about that. But as far as here, I think there it, it's we, we need to build more rental. We need, you know, the what you were mentioning makes sense. And we need, you know, there they, we will build more condominiums that I, I, I will assure you that that's all all in line for it. And we're going to see a continued growth period once we get through the worst of the, these rate hikes. Um, and really what needs to happen is it's, it's not just the rate stopping going up. They need to start coming down a bit. They're not going to return to, you're not going to be getting five-year money at 2% again. That, that I don't think is in the cards. But if you get rate, rate reductions that bring the Bank of Canada rate down in that 35 to 4% range, you're going to see uh, a, a, a sales boom followed, of course, by a construction boom and more units coming on the marketplace. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> you know, you you told us a story about your first property when you bought at eleven percent interest rate. Didn't realize that six months later you had to renew, and it was it was eighteen percent. I mean, you know, interest rates. It's funny because I don't know, maybe prior to a year ago, the general public wasn't too aware of, of interest rates. Now, you've seen these cycles, you've been in the industry in these in these cycles previously. Was there the same kind of hysteria that there is now? And, you know, I mean, I can't look anywhere. Maybe, you know, we talk about this, maybe we're in an echo chamber because we're in real estate. We are investors. We talk to guys like you. Um, outside of just real estate, like, you know, is was this the same hysteria over everyone obsessing over interest rates and the effect that they have on on the economy back in the in the 80s and in the 90s and those other in those other dips and those other recessions that you've been through and experienced? I'd like to say no, but I'd say it probably was. Yeah. Uh, myself, you mentioned my, myself when I first bought, it was just a product of pure naivete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ignorance really was bliss yeah, for, I, for six I, months. Yeah, and I, I blush yeah. saying it, but yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's naivete and a lesson for anyone listening, you know, do your research, right? Learn, learn about what you're going to buy. Buying, whether it's buying a home as an investment or buying a home because you need a place to live, it's a big purchase and you should take the time to learn what market you're, you're buying. Uh, but interest rates is, is ultimately, when you look at historically, uh, it's always what really is driving things, right? Mm. So it's, it's because it just comes down to the cost of goods. So either, you know, when you look at affordability, you either have to have a house price that's lower so that it can absorb the higher rate, or if the prices of the homes are higher, you have to have a lower rate to absorb the higher price of the homes. And for the last seven or eight years, what we had was rising prices, but the rates coming down low, which was able to absorb the impact of the increased house prices. So going into what does a recovery look like from it, you have to see rates come down a bit. It's not going to come down to where it was, but you've got to see them come down a bit. And of course, in the meantime, the other thing you are seeing is inflation in uh, in salaries, right? So people are making more money. That's actually a good thing, right? Because all of these things are converging 
to eventually get to a stage a couple of years from now where the affordability is much better than it is today. And that has to happen because you can't remain in a marketplace where the average house, you need to have an income that puts you into the top 2% income earners of Canada. It doesn't make a lot of sense for the long haul. So we're seeing that starting to happen. People are are getting 4 and 5% increases in their employment salaries. It's a good thing. Um, you're going to see the rates will not stay where they are for another two years. You know, We're going to see at some stage next year, the rates will come down a bit. And that's also a good thing. And the, the two help uh, to create that affordability, which will also drive the next kind of upcycle of the market. I think wages play a role there as well, right? Like we are seeing a, a, a hopefully a, a new wave of, of wage growth as employees are getting more and more. I mean, that outside of the real estate conversation, the labor negotiation conversation is becoming one that's increasingly popular. People pushing for higher and higher wage increases against inflation. And that can also, I mean, you have price, interest rate, and the amount of money that the homeowner makes. Those are your only three components of housing affordability. Yeah, exactly. I just want to touch on one more thing before we start to wrap up here, because um, what we try to do, a lot of our, I mean, we have people listening across the country, very broad spectrum, but I'd, I'd say a lot of our audiences newer, if not people trying to grow their portfolio, younger investors. So we're trying to take what you're saying on a very high level in one of the biggest home builders in the country and being able to apply it to them. So going back to Daniel's being vertically integrated, you know, what is that? Is that a basically a hedge against the the labor shortages that, that we're seeing right now? Because you know, I, I have a background in construction. So does Dan. We, you know, we we do small scale construction on our properties, um, but the trades are, are in such dire demand, right? I mean, like you guys must know this better than most. So when we talk about vertical vertical integration, is that all in house? Is that something you guys are experiencing issues with? And then just you know, going back to how a small scale investor can do this, it's like you need to have, you know, if you've if you've got one house, you need two plumbers. You know, you, you need two handymen. You need two people that can do your roof because one's not going to be enough or one's going to be too expensive or one's going to close down or move away or whatever it may be. So how are you guys tackling the labor shortage, specifically on the skilled trade side of things um, now? And, and how do you see that as part of the recovery that you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question and, and really speaks to some of the deep issues that that are out there right now. So, yes, when I say we're vertically integrated, what does that mean? Well, it means it gives us some control. Um, whenever you're going outside for part of what you're doing, you kind of you lose some control, right? If you get a general contractor to build the building for you, you're losing control of, of that whole part of the process. So one of the most important reasons why we did it is control cost control is another part of it as well right it's your it's your organization you're you're able to get a better handle on costs and in projecting costs because that's the other thing when you do go on sale with in a marketplace like we're at is knowing what your construction costs are going to be i mean the some of the projects that you've seen get canceled is because they really didn't have a handle on their construction costs and even though it looked like they were very successful in selling the reality was that they didn't have the right handle on the costs. And even though they were successful in selling, it wasn't a profitable project. And that's why it didn't go ahead. So it allows us to do all of those things. Now, we still have the same issues, you know, when you talk about skilled trades and shortages of skilled trades. 
Uh, and, you know, even though we're an in-house construction company, the reality is we're not a forming company, right? We're not carpenters. We don't have, mm-hmm. you know, we're not electricians. So we're still going out to the, to these trades, uh, to do a lot of the work that goes into building uh, a new home. So we, we still have that same issue that everyone else has. And that's a industry-wide problem. The thing I would say is with the type of size that we have, we have a little more leverage, right? So if you're a really small developer who's maybe building one or two buildings, you don't have a lot of leverage with that those trades to come and work on your project rather than somebody else's, right? So we can say, hey, look look at our pipeline, right? You know, come do this one. I know you're so busy and you can be anywhere you want to right now, but do ours because then two five years, years from, from now, now, three yeah. years from now, yeah. you're, you know you've still got this one. Right. So that's kind of, you know, the way we leverage our size. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is there's not enough people going into the into the skilled trades. And, you know, we talked about immigration a little while ago, part of the, an immigration strategy. And they are kind of trying to follow the strategy is getting some skilled trades in because we have such a need for them. We can't right now with the level of demand there is, we're not fulfilling that. So it's it's a challenge that. We need to bring more people in. It's the bottom line. Love it. I think uh, I think that's a great place to call it, Dominic. Unless you had any closing thoughts or remarks or anything. I'd you know I'd say I'm, I'm, this has been a great conversation. I'd say for anyone who's, who's you know I, I would go back to what we started with is is you know what 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 do you need to be to to be a really successful investor? Don't be afraid to be a leader. Don't be afraid to be a maverick. Do your research, and that that is really important. Do your research, but have have the confidence to do what you can see makes sense over a period of five to seven years, regardless of what everyone else is doing around you. So ignore the noise and stay focused on your plan. Love that. Thank you so much for the time and for coming on and for having uh, us in your office to do this in person. It's great to meet you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Man, um, I, I I just love these these in person interviews that we get to have with with people such as Dominic. Like, what a great experience! What a great guy! Wealth of knowledge, Dan. I mean, it it's fun. It's also fun because again, it's not just you and I looking at each other. We were on set, on site with uh with a new face that always adds some some great info into the mix, right? Some some stuff that maybe you and I wouldn't have thought about, but also experience. I mean, Dominic's been around for so long in the industry for so long that he's he's able to shed light on things that you and I might not understand just strictly because we haven't experienced it and been around long enough. Yeah. And I mean, I think we don't really want to be interview only podcast style, but we do like to mix it up every now and then. And um, and when we can get guests, high caliber guests on like Dominic, to discuss things and kind of just, I mean, you're honestly just like adding a layer of trust to the things that we're already trying to communicate. Cause we were on consensus on most points, I think about how the market's going. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's nice to have, you know, a 20 plus year industry veteran who's running one of the biggest real estate companies in, in the country to say these things, just in case some of our audience doesn't trust <laughs> yeah. us yet. So, um, and I guess on that note, while we wrap up, we have a couple of announcements. Um, we're planning to take on a very small group of people to join our first cohort of our course. You guys have heard us talk Ooh. about this a couple of times. 
Yeah, it's it's in development. Um, it'll be a very limited spots. We want to keep it small. That's all we're going to say for now. Um, we're hoping to have a link in the bio either with this episode. If there, if you don't see a link in the bio, send us an email and we'll send it to you as soon as it's there. It's going to be first come, first serve. It's really the only way that we can possibly deliver it in a fair way. And um, so either email us so we'll send you the link as soon as it's live. If not, it'll be either in this show notes um or the net or subsequent show notes um and yeah. i guess while we're you're so, we're excited other, about that one any other uh random things you want to pedal here nick before we wrap up <laughs> yeah yeah may as well um you know going into i hate to even say it this this episode will be out um friday august 18th and it Oh man, it feels weird to start talking about um, the fall, but uh, in my head, anyways, you know, the end of August is always the end of summer, and as that, you know, as summer does come to an end, Canadians start to have less and less to do because there's less to do outside. Um, and Dan, you and I have been putting a lot of effort into these cross-country meetups, getting more and more deals done across the country. Today, we were just um, talking about some large. Edmonton multifamily stuff. So we're really bringing the community together. And that's just the, the quick plug for uh, go check out realestatemeetups.ca. Join one, attend one, reach out to us and start one if there's not one happening in your area. Uh, we love that. And then while you're at it, um, you may as well go check out realestatemerch.ca. And we're coming up with some some pretty funny stuff in, in my opinion. But and a lot of us, uh, a lot of people have asked us if we're going to be doing Christmas sweaters again. We are. We have two great ones. We're going to bring back the uh, Ferlis Navidad, and we're also going to bring out a Merry Tiffmas uh, Christmas sweater. Will someone rate to Tiff Mac. And, and yeah, I would love to do that. Actually, we're certainly going to. We do will. That. We um, will. <laughs> you know, because he's going to bring us, uh, according to all the bulls on TikTok, rate cuts for Christmas. Um, I don't. That's not financial advice. I don't agree. But wow. um, and. Uh, yeah, there's Christmas some, there's, miracle. Yeah, there's some hilarious merch up there, um, but we will get, we're going to get those Christmas sweaters out early because a lot of people had issues getting them by Christmas for their Christmas party season. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we'll make sure they're they're going to be up in September. And then real estate uh, meetups.ca. Our meetups are starting in September. First one September 12th. Second one is October 10th. And I want to say November 14th is the next one after that. Haven't decided whether or not we're going to do one in in. Um, December yet, but those are the dates. Um, they should be happening in your city. If they're not happening in your city, they're going to be casual. We're just focused on community building right now. So it's going to be a bunch of our listeners or a bunch of people just meeting at a bar, talking about real estate, doing deals, really building the community so we can ramp up. We want to get each of those meetup groups to minimum of 200 members before we really start pushing for more polished, um, value-driven events. So help us build that community by showing up or hosting a meetup. Thank you. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.